Well, I'm going to do something uh, a little different today, also with the passage that I'm going to be preaching on, because uh, customarily I like to read the whole text first and then go back and move through it. But because I have chosen a larger portion of, pass, of, of a passage than usual, uh, I would like us just to kind of move through it incrementally and read each of the sections as we're gleaning together what God's Word uh, has to say. Uh, before we begin, though, uh, I'd really like to pause and pray. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you just for the, the sweetness of the voices we've just heard together, hearing one another, singing praises to your name. And now, Father, uh, we come to your word. And Lord God, I, I pray that you would enable me uh, to do justice to this passage. It is such a magnificent declaration of who you are. And Lord, uh, may our hearts be uh, stirred in a new way. May we have a, a fresh look at how awesome and great and powerful you are. And also, how loving you are toward us. So help me as the teacher Help these listeners as the learners, and may we all learn together more about what it means to be a child of God. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah wrote to the people of the southern kingdom of Judah during an era that was fraught with problems and major crises, I might add. And in fact, it would, I would liken it to how the whole world watched and listened with a sense of angst as Russian troops were building on the border of Ukraine last fall. And as the troops kept increasing and the military hardware was moving in, it was followed just about moment by moment on news media all around the world until finally on February, I think it was 24th, Russia launched the invasion of Ukraine and a battle ensued which is still going on. But you can imagine if you had been living in Ukraine last fall and to be seeing what was going on, to see the pending doom that was coming upon them, if you could somehow try to identify with what that must be like to think that house and home and family, that your very livelihood, that your very place of residence is going to be threatened and overtaken. That is what the mindset was for the people that were a part of Isaiah's audience. Isaiah ministered and prophesied through the 8th century, which would be the 700s B.C. And Isaiah specifically references in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, the place on the calendar where he is bringing his prophecies because he references the fact that in the year King Uzziah died, and King Uzziah had reigned for 52 years, and we do know that he died in 745 B.C., and it was during these years that on the borders of Israel, there were troops that were gathering, and it was from the nation of Babylon. 
And in chapters 1 to 39, Isaiah breaks down into two major sections, chapters 1 to 39 and then chapter 40 to the end in chapter 66. I think it's fair to say that in chapters 1 to 39, there are some glimmers of hope along the way, but by and large, chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah is bringing a message of doom and gloom. And the reason being, if you would like to glance back for just a moment, and then I'll get to the text proper in chapter 40, in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 4 Isaiah states, Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they have turned away from Him. And because of their disobedience and unfaithfulness to the Lord, verse 11 of chapter 1, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs or goats. And then dropping down to verse 15. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. So this coming judgment is not only going to bring an invasion of their homeland, and eventually be carried off into captivity and exile, but it also is going to bring estrangement from God. And the blistering series of indictments in chapters 1 to 39, we read a couple of them, but it included idolatry, blasphemous sacrifices, murder, stealing, bribery, oppression of the poor, drunkenness, materialism. But after all of that doom and gloom in chapters 1 to 39, we come to chapter 40. And what do the first two verses say? Comfort, O comfort my people. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed. She has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And so there's a dramatic change in Isaiah's prophecy beginning with chapter 40 with those first two verses. And then as he moves on, and we're going to kind of dive in at verse 12, but perhaps you have seen on television at some point, or perhaps you've even attended an unveiling ceremony. Uh, Whenever there's going to be a portrait of someone famous, like a presidential portrait, or if there's some famous statue that's been done by a sculptor, usually when everyone gathers, there's a large dark cloth hanging over the painting or over the statue. And then they pull it down, and it's there. And then everybody applauds as they're getting their first look. Well, Isaiah, in order to encourage his people, at this point, he is, as it were, taking off the cloth and unveiling and reminding them who God is. And thus he says in verse 9, Come yourself, excuse me, get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Here is your God. And then he moves through with uh, eloquent poetry through the rest of this chapter saying, this is who your God is. 
and he proceeds to prove that no one compares to the one true God as evidenced by, and I have there on the back of the bulletin for you, uh, four main characteristics about God that prove that he is without peer. The first one we see in verses 12 and in 25 and 26 in particular, his creative power, verse 12. And by the way, Isaiah employs 300 years before Socrates came on the scene what we call the Socratic method. It's a way of instruction and having dialogue by asking questions in order to lead someone to a reasonable uh, conclusion. So he asks numerous questions in the midst of this poetry. But the first, verse 12, who has measured the waters and the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Drop down to verse 25. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Well, as reflected in our world, and in the entire universe. Isaiah uses common means of human measuring to show how puny they are and how inadequate they are to measure objects of God's creation. And he speaks of things that were common in everyday life. He says, who has measured the waters? Whether that means all the water on the earth, including lakes and rivers or whatever. Uh, the Hebrew text in the Dead Sea Scrolls refers to it as the seas or the oceans is the waters that it's being referred to. Think about that. Isaiah uses the example of the hollow of your hand. You know, that's how you know when you cup your hand if you're trying to get water to drink. Well, speaking metaphorically, he asked the question, who has measured the waters on this earth and the hollow of his hand as God has. What is it? Two-thirds of the earth's surface is covered uh, in oceans? Who has calculated the dust of the earth? It's as if uh, someone's reaching into the flour canister with a scoop and taking it out to measure, uh, to bake something. And God measures the very dust of the earth. It, it, it's so expansive. It's so immense. It's, it's really hard to get our, our minds around it. That's a lot of dust. I mean, if you need a reminder of just how dust just kind of multiplies and how much of it there is, go home and move your chest of drawers away from the wall and see what you see on the floor. Now, maybe there's some here that probably once a year pull it out, but whatever, and, and do some cleaning. But then he, he, he gives another illustration. He says, who has weighed the mountains and the hills on scales? I mean, what's the picture he's giving us here? I mean, we know what it's like to go to the deli and order half a pound of meat, and they put it on the scale, and they hand it to you. Well, God has a scale, and God's scale actually can weigh the mountains and hills of planet Earth. That's impressive. 
I don't understand all the scientific measurements of how they do this, but I have read in my reading that Mount Everest probably weighs 350 trillion tons. I don't even understand what a trillion is, really. I've just now gotten to where I can conceptualize a billion. But I mean, if you have a, a four by eight granite countertop in your house, it probably weighs 700 pounds. God can weigh the very mountains and hills of the world in which we live. And then he also says that he's, he's, marked, he's marked the heavens. What he says in verse 12, along with verses 25 and 26. And, and the language he uses there, he says, has marked off the heavens by the span. Now, if you look in the margin, your Bible probably has a footnote that says the span is a half a cubit because uh, a cubit was 18 inches. And so when someone talks about the span, they're talking about a half cubit, which is nine inches, which is typically the hand spread from here to here is typically nine inches. Actually, I measured mine yesterday. Mine's 10. So I guess I have an unbiblical hand spread. But anyway, um, uh, one translation has it, the breadth of his hand. But I like the New Living Translation. Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? And when we think of the vastness of the heavens and the universe, and that God is, can measure them the way we would measure something with the span of our hand. And he says over in verses 25 and 26, you know, lift up your eyes and see who created these stars. I mean, science was not my strong suit in high school, and I avoided it as much as possible in college. I have to tip my hat to George Bose, who's a scientist. But that wasn't my cup of tea. But I've done my share of reading. And I understand that in the universe in which we live, that our sun is considered an average-sized star. And I think an average-sized star, if our sun was hollow, you could fit one million Earths inside of it. Can you just stop for a moment and think about that? If our sun is hollow, you can fit a million Earths inside of it. In fact, if we took the Earth with its orbiting moon and put it at the very center in the middle of the sun, out to the moon's orbit would only be halfway to the sun's surface. And Isaiah reminds us, God not only created these stars, he numbered them in verse 26, and he calls them all by name. fantastic. From what I understand, if we go out into the night sky on a clear night with the naked eye, we could see at the most 6,000 stars. And then we read that our galaxy, the Milky Way, I had to chuckle when I read this. Astronomers and other scientists are telling us that our Milky Way has between 100 and 400 billion stars. Could it be any less precise? <laughs> I mean, that, that's a pretty big span between 100 billion and 400 billion. But due to God's greatness and might, not a single star has gone AWOL that he doesn't know about and that he hasn't actually named. 
I don't usually think in such grand thoughts. When I hear the word Milky Way, I think of my favorite candy bar, but which happens to be my grandson's favorite candy bar. And um, I take Oliver to school four mornings a week during the school year, and every morning I have a Milky Way in the car for him. That's something grandparents get away with that parents wouldn't be so excited about. But I don't give him a big one. I give him those little fun-sized ones that are about the size of your thumb, but... That's got nothing to do with this message. Let's get back to what's at hand. I'll just, if, if this hasn't already kind of stretched your brain to the point your brain's aching a little bit, let me just pass along one other thing when he says that he is the one who's created these stars and leads them forth as a host by number. Back in 1977, for those of you that were old enough to remember, NASA launched two satellites, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, thinking they might last four or five years, and here we are 43 years later, and they're still going. And they were about, each of them were about the size of a subcompact car weighing about 1,700 pounds. And they have been traveling at 34,000 miles per hour. And to date, they have traveled over 14 billion miles. Voyager 1 left our solar system 30, uh, back in uh, August of uh, 2012, and then Voyager 2 left our solar system in 2018. If the Voyagers, and they're getting weaker and weaker, and the signals are becoming more intermittent, and they'll finally uh, die, but when the signal is sent, they are so far out there that it takes 17 hours for the signal to reach back to our instruments here. And so when we look at Isaiah's vocabulary here in verses 12, 25, and 26, using things that we're very familiar with as far as measuring the hollow of the hand, the breadth of the hand, marking off, weighing, in human terms, these are measurements and tools that we use for relatively small-scale working, but in comparison, they underline the immensity of the Creator and His relationship to His creation. One other principle I want to throw in before we move on, and this is at the heart of God's creative acts, is that all of these things that exist in the universe and on our planet, God not only created them, but he created them in what theologians call ex nihilo, which means he created it out of nothing. God spoke the universe into being out of nothing. He did not take eternally pre-existing matter or substance and reshape or reconfigure it to the present world. It's not like human artists who take a lump of clay or a canvas and then create. God created ex nihilo, out of nothing. I once uh, read a tale where the writer... Uh, imagines a conversation between God and a brilliant scientist, and the conversation goes like this. The scientist says to God, with all of our extraordinary scientific advances and knowledge, we can create whatever you can. God says, I accept the challenge, so let us go back and start from the beginning as I did with Adam. The scientist says, no problem, and then he reaches down to scoop up an amount of dirt. God says, no, 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 you get your own dirt. I said it was imaginary. Well, just as verse 12 states that man is not capable of inspecting and measuring God's creation, 
verses 13 and 14 declare that neither can man teach or direct God in anything. His infinite wisdom, 13 and 14, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding, and who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Who has been God's teacher? No one. Mankind needs to keep in mind our finitude, that God is infinite, we are finite. I remember the Apostle Paul gave a warning about knowledge. And what did he say about it? That if we're not careful, knowledge can puff up. And it is interesting, and um, there are many learned people who admit this, that the more we expand our horizons of knowledge, the smaller we become in the great scheme of things in our universe. And for all that medical science has discovered about the brain, it's so phenomenal, and yet those same people will say there's so much we still don't understand and know. The Apostle Paul acknowledges this when he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or has become his counselor? Or who first gave to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's Romans eleven thirty three to 36. Many of us have memorized Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And when you think through the lengthy dialogue that Job has with the Lord on many issues, this idea of wisdom and knowledge certainly is a part of that interplay between the Lord and Job. Job says, within at one point, the Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind, and he says to him, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And then over in uh, Job uh, 28, we read in uh, verse 20, Where then does wisdom come from? And where is the place of understanding? A few verses later, And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. And typically, when we hit a rough spot in the road where there's something in life that uh, has knocked us off of our equilibrium, we don't understand God's purposes, we often go and quote this verse, which we're acknowledging His infinite wisdom at this point. And I'm referencing a statement that Isaiah makes in chapter 55, verse 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So no one compares to the one true God as evidenced by his creative power, his infinite wisdom, 
And then next, his sovereign authority. Verses 15 through 17, 18 through 20, and 21 through 24. I'm going to read those as one lump sum here. Verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. All nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. So he speaks of God's sovereign authority in over three realms. The first, in verses 15 and through 17, is his authority over the nations of the world. Isaiah's audience, as I already briefly mentioned, was no stranger to the grabbing power of other nations around them. And all of human history is an account of that fact. Just over a hundred years earlier, these people in Judah had witnessed their northern fellow Jews, their northern neighbors, get overtaken by Assyria, and they themselves had been under siege by Assyria, but God miraculously delivered them. But as I said, now Babylon is looming as the threat. Isaiah's audience, and today, an audience that includes you and me, we are well aware of the current geopolitical schemes of nations to expand their boundaries and to expand their economic and their military power. You've got Putin trying to recapture past dominance, China in its effort to become the world's economic superpower, Iran wanting as much power as it takes to obliterate Israel. But listen, child of God, we are to be reminded and to know this that the most massive population of a nation, the greatest military arsenal of a nation, the wealthiest economy, Isaiah's poetry says it this way, before the Lord is a drop in the bucket, is it a speck of dust that you could flick off with God's finger. Not only does he say nations are nothing before him, he says even less than nothing. And in case if you're curious as to why he adds in verse 16 about Lebanon is not enough to burn or its beasts enough, Lebanon was very famous for its cedar trees, and they imported this wood. In fact, Solomon ordered much of the cedar from Lebanon. 
and so he's imagining some great uh, offering of animals with all the wood that it takes to burn animals. And he's saying, even all the trees and beasts of Lebanon are not enough to provide a burnt offering that's going to somehow impress God. It would be like us saying, taking all the redwoods of California and all the cattle from Texas together is not going to create enough of a burnt offering. The second realm, after nations, he addresses is that of idols. God's sovereign authority over idols in verses 18 to 20. You know, when you read this description here, of course, we're talking about times of antiquity, but it still takes place in some places in the world with some more primitive peoples. Their gods and their likenesses are formed by the art and imagination of people. And we don't have time today, but over in Isaiah chapter 44, if you'd like to read this later on your own, if you turn over to Isaiah 44, verse 6, God begins to talk about the folly of idolatry, and he gets very, very specific there, and points out that the man who uses the fire to fashion an idol uses the rest of the wood to cook meat for himself. I mean, that, that's how mundane, this idea of creating an idol, you know, to worship. And the way he describes it here is the person who has means may uh, fashion and ask a craftsman to make a, a representation of his god or goddess using precious metals, but for someone who's poor, they may find someone who will take wood to make a god or goddess for them. But yet, what is the instructions they give the craftsman? Now, when you're making this representation of my God that I will bow to in my house, make sure you make the base strong enough so it doesn't fall over. There's nothing more embarrassing than having friends for dinner and to have your God fall off the shelf because it's not sturdy. But that's, I, I think Isaiah is poking a little bit of fun here when he says that. It's some sanctified sarcasm, if you would. It's unlikely that any of us or anyone we know has been crafting idols from wood and precious metals, but as is often pointed out, there's a different kind of idolatry uh, that we worship, whether it's the business I built or the financial portfolio I've accumulated or the awards on my shelf or my achievements or the other things in this life that one has attained. You know, it's interesting, long before the prophets came along, the prophet par excellence, Moses, in fact, could you hold your place and turn back to Deuteronomy 4? Deuteronomy 4. Uh, the context here is Moses is, you know, giving a charge to the people about what they're to do and not do and being faithful to God. And picking up with verse 15, look what he foresaw and what he warns them. He says in verse 15, So watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, 
the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. And then he adds this, And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So Moses looked ahead and saw, you know, and indeed so much of the mythology of the Greeks and the Romans had to do with the stars of the sky representing certain gods and goddesses. God has sovereign authority over idols and over people in general. Verse 22, it is he who sits above the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. That's pretty uh, insignificant, isn't it? You remember the first time you took a flight on an airplane and uh, it started to take off, and as you're looking down the window, perhaps you see the city and all the cars and all the people look like little ants running around. That's one of the first things that hits us when we're in a plane and look down, just how little everything looks. Well, this picture here that when God looks down he sees the equivalent of locusts in terms of our apparent size and our existence. And he says their rulers in particular are as nothing. So it's, it's quite, uh, man, the things we've read so far, uh, I hope I have not done an injustice to this because... This, this panoramic rehearsal here that Isaiah has written for us of the awesome power and greatness of God leads Isaiah to ask two final questions, or to write two final questions. And the first one is verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. Now, why have they whined this way? Well, because of everything that Isaiah has described as their society is rotting from within, morally, spiritually, economically, geopolitically, the walls are crumbling, Babylon's on the march, and so they've concluded, God's forgotten about us. God doesn't see. God has forgotten me. He has overlooked me and my plight. He addresses them very personally at this point because he mentions the name Jacob and Israel uh, when he asks this question, Why do you say, O Jacob and assert, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. Most of us have probably at some point in our walk with the Lord and in our Christian journey have confronted some circumstances to where may it be ever so temporarily or so short-lived, we find ourselves asking, has my life on earth become so tangled that the Lord has lost sight of me or that the Lord is not hearing me? Well, before he answers the second question, excuse me, before he answers the first question with the second question in verse 28, 
I want you to look back with me to some verses that I have not brought to your attention yet. Go back up to verses 10 and 11 of this chapter. Because right after he made the bold declaration, here is your God, at the end of verse 9, he went on to say this, Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. In that statement of verses 10 and 11, Isaiah puts before us two enormous truths about God side by side. And the first is how powerful he is and that the day is coming when their judgment will be completed and God will judge the nations and the people of the earth. So he's coming in, his, in all of his might, his arm ruling for him. But what's the other thing right beside it in the next verse? But God is not only powerful, He is also personal. The omnipotent, sovereign God is also the gentle shepherd to His people. And so it should be no surprise to us that when God became a man, the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, Jesus was, as the God-man, as He was proclaiming the truth of salvation and the message of the gospel, He did so with the heart of a shepherd. Jesus had a lot of very stern and harsh things. Remember the woes, 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 woes? He said a lot of things that were very uh, much cut to the quick about people's lives. But at one point he came before a crowd and the gospel writer tells us in Matthew 9, 36 that Jesus had compassion on them. And what was it that moved his compassion in that moment? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And Isaiah had proclaimed it, that God is a gentle shepherd. When Jesus gives the parable of the man with the hundred sheep, and uh, he counts up at the end of the day, 99, there's one missing. And what does he do as a faithful shepherd who tends the flock? He goes searching for the one lost sheep. And then, too, we think of Jesus himself in John chapter 10 gives a rather extended uh, portrayal of himself as the good shepherd. And he says, I'm quoting Jesus directly in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, which is what the communion table uh, visibly reminds us of, about his body and his blood, that he lays down his life for the sheep. But verse 28 asks and answers the question of verse 27. 
Interestingly, back up in verse 21 when he said, do you not know, have you not heard, that appears in the plural, speaking to the group. Here it gets more personal because when he says, do you not know, have you not heard in verse 28, it's in the singular. So he's being much more specific and personal at this point. And he restates the truth that God is creator and consequently he never grows tired and weary. Let me read them. Do you not know, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. To bring out prisoners, I've flipped over one page too many, excuse me. Verse 30, though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. But this promise of God supplying power and strength rests on the knowledge that we know He has it because He's the one that created everything around us. And so He never grows tired or weary. And He says His understanding, and this will vary in translation, that His understanding is inscrutable. That means that His uh, his understanding is, uh, is infinite. We can never completely grasp it. It's so far above us. And in fact, the Hebrew word carries the idea of investigate. So he's saying as much as man investigates and searches, he can never plumb the depths of the wisdom and the understanding of God. So when we can or do become exhausted, tired, weary in body and spirit, at times just due to the hardness of life. Know this, people of Judah. Know this, the people of Chapel Gainesville. The God of heaven and earth, the one who is inexhaustible, who possesses limitless strength, promises to supply a measure of His strength and power to us. And then he includes a very important word in verse 31, to those who wait for the Lord. And that's often the hardest part, isn't it? It's the waiting. The word wait, we should not think of as just sort of an idle twiddling our thumbs. Rather, uh, when you dig into the etymology of the word kava, it denotes hopeful waiting. It reflects resting trustfully because the one who upholds the stars also upholds his weary people. In conclusion, I'd like to ask you to flip over a couple of chapters to Isaiah 44. I'd like to read to you just two final verses there. Forty-four uh, twenty-one. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. Remember how they were whining back in verse 
27, my way is hidden from the Lord. He is not forgotten. And then finally, glance back to verse 8. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. And I know of none. And if you know of none, say amen.